Good afternoon. My name is Ezra Hale. I'm an elder serving Clearnote Church. I'm the husband of Mrs. Hale and the father of several children. I'm also an attorney, and over the last 18 years, I've trained and worked in the law and government, including the judicial and executive branches of state government. And more importantly, more important than anything about my background, I'm a Christian, and Jesus saved me through the ministry of this church, Clearnote Church. And because of that, I have a special or a, I have a heart for the ministry of the church in proclaiming the gospel in the world because that's how I was saved. So with that introduction, please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 14 through 16. This is the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing to Timothy. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And we are focusing on that phrase this afternoon. The pillar and support of the truth, but there's more. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. Remember those nations we sung about? or saying about earlier, the ones that were in an uproar, the ones that were raging, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. In Indiana, a week or so before Easter this year, all hell broke loose. And you didn't have to be in Indiana to know that because it became a national morality play It was fodder for the Sunday morning political talk shows, became a daily staple of the cable news channels, and it even made David Letterman's top ten list one night. Hillary Clinton, Miley Cyrus, Tim Cook from Apple made their voices heard. The governor of Connecticut issued an executive order forbidding his state employees from traveling to Indiana on state business. And you might wonder what happened in Indiana that would elicit such a negative reaction. Here's what happened. A law was passed, and it was called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, also known as RIFRA. It was introduced in the Indiana Senate, was assigned to a committee, it was debated, there was testimony in committee, passed out of the Senate 40 to 10, went to the House, The House took it up, assigned it to a committee, there was testimony, there was debate, there was a vote, passed out of the full House, 63 to 31. Finally, it went to the governor's desk and he signed it. He signed it. And all hell broke loose. The purpose of the state RIFRA, like its federal counterpart, was to require courts 
to more stringently scrutinize claims of conscience, First Amendment claims, when there was a conflict between a law and what we'll call the conscientious objector. So the law, RIFRA, said judges apply strict scrutiny to any claim that a law binds or restricts the conscience of the believer in this particular case. So you're, you're putting the, the weight on the scales in favor of conscience, in favor of the First Amendment. So, a firestorm erupted and the law was quickly amended, leaving Christians in a far worse position than if they had never passed the law to begin with. All this happened despite decades of Christian work in public policy think tanks, legal advocacy groups, political action committees, Christian law schools, Christian colleges, political parties. We have the Moral Majority, Alliance Defending Freedom, American Center for Law and Justice, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, Americans United for Life, Liberty University, and thousands of state and federal office holders who profess to be Christians. Yet one thing is lacking. What's that thing that's lacking institutionally today? There's, I'll give you a hint. We read about her in the scripture. What's the institution that's lacking today? What? The church. She is the pillar and support of the truth. And none of these things either individually or in combination, the political parties, the office holders, the Christian universities, the think tanks, the legal advocacy groups, none of them individually or in combination is the pillar in support of the truth. Only only the church has been adorned with that title, with that responsibility. And the capability to be the pillar in support of the truth. Am I saying don't do those other things? No. But we have to hold up the church today as the pillar in support of the truth. So there are Christians everywhere in government and, and the law. Still we get the riffra we ended up with, written by Christians. I know them, enacted by Christians. And for the persecution of Christians, as it turns out. Not their intention, but that's what's happening. What we wanted and what we thought we were getting was protection for rights of conscience, protection for exercise of religion, a place to stand to honor God in the public square and call our fellow sinners to faith and repentance. What we got was persecution, no surprise there. But sadly, this law that was amended is the foundation for greater persecution to come. Why? One reason is that we've trusted in 
we Christians have trusted in political conservatism and its institutional apparatus. But as a theologian and the chief of staff to Stonewall Jackson and a pastor, R.L. Dabney, as he said in the late 1800s, political conservatism is the shadow that follows radicalism to perdition. Political conservatism is the shadow that follows radicalism to perdition. And if you don't know what perdition means, it's a bad place. We don't want to go there. Perdition. Here's, here's the quote. This is what he says about political conservatism in the 1800s. So just think about where we are today. He says, this is a party which never conserves anything. Its history has been that it demurs to each aggression of the progressive party and aims to save its credit by a respectable, respectable amount of growling. <sighs> Abortion. <sighs> and they roll over. Homosexuality, the pressure turns up on them and they roll over. And he says, they always acquiesce at the last in the innovation, in the thing that's being proposed that's new, that's going to change our culture and our society. He says, what was the resisted novelty of yesterday is today one of the accepted principles of conservatism. It is now conservative, conservative only and affecting to resist the next innovation. So they got moved off. They're done defending this innovation. They got a cave, so we're going to move on down the line so that we can be respectable. It is now conservative only in affecting to resist the next innovation, which will tomorrow be forced upon its timidity, its fearfulness, and will be succeeded by some third revolution to be being announced and adopted in its turn. American conservatism is merely the shadow that follows radicalism as it moves towards perdition. It remains behind it, but never retards it, and always advances near its leader. It's got to stay, it's got to stay up to date. It's got to stay hip. Not too hip, because then it, its cover would be blown, but it's got to be, be close enough to be have a place at the table. This pretended salt hath utterly lost its savor. Wherewith shall it be salted? Do you know where that, what that's a quote from? It's Jesus. Sermon on the Mount. Its impotency is not hard indeed to explain. It is worthless because it is the conservatism of expediency only and not of sturdy principle. It intends to risk nothing serious for the sake of the truth and has no idea of being guilty of the folly of, how does he end, do you know? Can you guess? The folly of what? Martyrdom. There's no, there's no conservative that's going to give up his political career for principle. He's not going to be a martyr. 
This was first said in the late 1800s, and it's just as true today of the American political scene, and its scope has now widened to include the American church in American politics. As Pastor Bailey has been teaching us the past few weeks, Christians are what they eat. Christians in law and government are what they eat. And they eat the food that the church serves them, and they pick churches that will serve them Gerber's vanilla pudding. No taste, almost liquid, just enough for a newborn to get down and to be digestible. But nothing solid, nothing that tastes good. So they have no doctrine of sin, no doctrine of the wrath of God, no doctrine of sexuality, no doctrine of manhood and womanhood, no doctrine of sphere sovereignty, no doctrine of the authority of God, no doctrine of suffering, no doctrine of the church militant, no doctrine of counting the cost, no doctrine of persecution, no doctrine that to live is Christ and to die is gain, no doctrine of Psalm 2, no doctrine of God's law, no doctrine of the rule of law. This, these are Christians in government and law today. <clears throat> Without these truths, what is the evangel? What is the good news? Without these truths, what is an evangelical without these truths? How can there be a good message in a land that is indifferent to or committed to perverse lawlessness? How can there be a good message in a church that is indifferent to or committed to perverse lawlessness? In his book, What is an an Evangelical? This is an an older version. There's a a newer version back at the the table there. This is what Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones says about the necessity of believing all that the Bible teaches. This applies to every Christian, whether they're in law and government, wherever they happen to be. He says, we must believe the whole Bible. We must believe the history of the Bible as well as its didactic teaching. And I'm going to insert something here. If Martin Lloyd-Jones were alive, he would add, for instance, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as a historical act, a fact that's true. He says, failure here is a departure from the true evangelical position. Today there are men who say, oh yes, we believe in the Bible and its supreme authority in matters of Of what? Religion. Yeah, the Bible. That's that's for religion. But of course, we don't go to the Bible for science. And if he were writing today, I think he would say, we don't go to the Bible for law. But he lived in a time that hadn't abandoned the Christian ethic in the law. So he didn't, he wasn't able to say that then. He goes on, we go to it for help for our souls, for salvation, and help and instruction in the way to live the Christian life. So this is what he says that the evangelical says today in dispensing with the Bible. So the evangelical today will have the Bible for his religion and his Sunday spiritual exercises, but the rest of his life, we don't need it, or he doesn't need it. 
And here's, here's Martin Lloyd-Jones' conclusion. You are familiar with this view, which it seems to me is not only extremely dangerous, but tends to undermine our whole position. So even they think they're, they're saving the, the gospel, what they've abstracted as the kernel of the Christian religion, getting rid of everything else that seems useless or unnecessary, but they lose the kernel when they dispense with other truths of God. He says, we have got to contest this and contest it very strongly, this viewpoint that the Bible is just for religious life. We have men without chests today because we have a so-called evangel without meat. The church in America, the church in the West has stripped the evangel of these doctrines or the connections to these doctrines. And under this delusion that these doctrines, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of wrath, the doctrine of a final judgment, under the delusion that that's a cultural excrescence, which is pus, that's oozing, it's nasty. Who wants a cultural excrescence? So evangelicals today think that these cultural excrescences, these doctrines, have no place in the modern church, much less in the modern public square. In streamlining the evangel, the church has robbed it of its power. How do I know this? As I've tried in my own very feeble, pathetic way to defend these doctrines in the law and in government, I've found repeatedly Christians have no grid to understand them, to discern them, or their importance. No grid. Or, let's say they have a grid. They have discernment. They lack courage then. We lack courage then. I, I will include myself in that. Let's say we have discernment. Let's say we find a man that has discernment. Let's say we find a man that has courage. He fears God, but he doesn't know what to do. So imagine yourself trying to explain this to someone who has not been taught, exhorted, by the church about the things that must be believed. Imagine trying to explain how a seemingly innocuous document like the, the modified RIFRA is going to lead to greater persecution because it, you, have to, you have to have discernment to see that. Just basic discernment. Not, you don't have to be level... 36 discernment, just basic discernment. That we're not going to have freedom to call our, our fellow homosexuals to faith and repentance. That the court's overthrowing of Indiana's domestic or uh, Indiana's law in defense of marriage was lawlessness and must be opposed. Those are the things Christians and, and law and government should know and should do. But you can't teach them that. You can't convince them of that because they have not been instructed. They have not been preached to. They have not been exhorted. They have not been admonished. They have not grown in their church. It's like trying to build 
the Empire State Building in 30 minutes. Impossible for a Christian in, law, in the law to try to teach his other Christians all the things they need to know to see what they need to see so that they can do what they're supposed to do. Okay, so what I make, this is what I'm trying to do right now, and that is to get you to see the necessity of the church in the work of reform. So as Christians, what should you be doing? You're probably thinking, Brian, I thought this was about politics. What Tim's talking about the church. What, you, you got the wrong topic. You're all mixed up here. Well, you want to know what you should be doing in politics? You should be attending and financially supporting and building churches that proclaim the evangel and all of the doctrines of Scripture. And where men have been trained to shepherd souls, to pastor, to call them out of their particular sins, to particular repentances, including sodomy, including bestiality, including pederasty, including adultery, including incest, all of the sexual sins of our culture, our day. So you want to know what to do? That's the first thing you need to do. And here's the second thing. The church should be disciplining civil magistrates in her midst. I'm going to paraphrase two verses in Scripture. Her keys, they comfort me. Which verses in Scripture am I talking about? Her keys, they comfort me. Psalm 23, what did I put in place of, what, what was in Psalm 23? Rod and staff, okay. Where am I getting the keys? Matthew 16. This is, this is Jesus' delegation of the keys of the kingdom to the church. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father who is in heaven... I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Is, can you think of one example in, in the entire world ever where a Protestant politician has been excommunicated? I used Google and Wikipedia. I could find no example. There, there, in fact, the Wikipedia page has uh, lists of people by denomination. And so there are like four Baptists in the history of the world that have been excommunicated and it was notorious enough to make Wikipedia. Like five Methodists, a few, a handful of Presbyterians, and that's it. <clears throat> we should have civil magistrates like myself who fear discipline. Sometimes we need a stick and not just a carrot to do our duty. 
We're not, I'm not that much different from my kids. And if, you're, if you are offended that I'm referring to you as children, then you must be offended by the Apostle John, who calls us his little children. We need the discipline of the church. It comforts us. The rod and staff, they comfort me. And here's the, here's the uh, not just for the gross commission of public duty, not just if they vote for things that are wicked, it's obvious. What about their silence? What about the silence of the civil magistrate? What about their omission of duty? Calvin, as he's talking about these verses in 1 Timothy 3, he says that when the church is silent about the truth, it's the same as crushing the truth. When the civil magistrate is silent about the truth, it's the same as crushing the truth. There's, there's, it's not a neutral position to stand in as a Christian. Okay, so first, what church, what church are you supporting and attending? Where are you being fed? Second, is your church disciplining civil magistrates? Third, the Protestant Reformed of Evangelical Church must unify. Did you, re- did you notice in verse 16 where it says, By common confession, great is the mystery of... What's the word that follows? Godliness. When I read that, I thought, that is so weird. That's not the word I would have put there. I would have put something like, by common confession, great is the mystery of the Trinity. By common confession, great is the the mystery of the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. By common confession, great is the mystery of the substitutionary atonement. But what the Holy Spirit said is godliness. Common confession. It's not just intellectual knowledge. It's holiness. It's godliness. Common confession. A common confession is assumed. And notice the link, again, between the common confession and godliness. One way to have unity around a common confession of godliness is not punishing Christians who clothe the naked public square because their tone is strident or nasty or not very positive or not enough positive with the negative. They didn't get the mix right. There's a very delicate ratio, okay? Let's stop punishing them because they're not sophisticated. They're not nuanced. Fourth, as is often the case in chess and in football, and so I think also in American politics, often the best defense is a good offense. And Christians need to take the initiative in the reformation of our culture instead of waiting for the next wave of deformation to hit. That's what we do. Here comes the wave of deformation. The Supreme Court um, in Lawrence versus Texas 2003 overthrows laws punishing sodomy. There's a wave of deformation. 
I think seven other states' laws fell, were overturned. That was 2003, and then we wait. We wait for the next wave of deformation that comes rolling, rolling down the hill toward us. And so 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court says that states must marry homosexual couples. States must marry a man and a man or a woman and a woman. For some reason, in the Supreme Court's wisdom, it has limited marriage to two people so far. But there, there is no basis for that limit. None. Because they've constructed this right out of whole cloth. Right out of whole cloth. So, all right, Brian, what do we do? What's our offense? Okay, here's, here's an offense. You, but I'm telling you, you guys aren't going to do it. You will not do it. Here's, here it is, okay? Promise. And this is a place in the recording where I want the guy to stop the recording and cut this out. So only you guys get to hear this. Okay, I told you, told you you weren't going to do that. Okay. Here's the next thing you won't do. Some from among your numbers should run for office. There's nothing like the focus of an electoral contest and criticism to draw media attention, where there's a platform, where there's an audience. And if you think I'm, I'm trying to uh, propel you towards vainglorious political success, I'm not. What I'm saying is there's a public square out there that is naked and that Christians need to clothe. And one effective way to clothe that, whether you win or lose, is to run for office. Every year, Christians, mostly from Clearnote Church, ritually show up to appeal to our city council not to award public money to Planned Parenthood. And the city council ritually awards public money to Planned Parenthood. I am not aware that this draws any media attention whatsoever. We just show up, they sit there smugly and listen, and then they don't listen to anything we, we say. It's the same effect as speaking to a deserted public square. Okay, next, next thing. Use your opponent's strengths against him. And at this point, I'm going to recommend this book, Persecution in the Early Church by Herbert, Herbert Workman, right over there at the, on the table. Wonderful read. Wonderful um, strengthening of Christians who are, who are facing and will face increasingly persecution in our country. This is, this is what he writes about the Roman Empire versus the Christians. He says, by the middle of the century, and this is the third century, this consciousness of a great struggle and danger had become so clear and definite that we see organized efforts on the part of the more energetic rulers in the Roman Empire to crush out the church by use of all the resources of the state. The police measures of the emperors gave place to a civil war without quarter, without mercy. But unlike all other civil wars, Only one side was armed, 
Strange to say, this side was the one that was ultimately defeated. The church won against the Roman Empire. So think of ways to use the PC's totalitarian mafia power against it. This should involve healthy doses of humor and satire. And at this point, I'm recommending Doug Wilson's Rules for Reformers. But I recommend that you read Pastor Lucas Weeks as a pastor here. He has a very good review on Amazon that will help you calibrate your expectations, okay? So read his review and then order it and read it. Have you guys heard of the, the Hugo Awards controversy? John, okay. Pastor Harland, okay. So Hugo Awards are awarded, this is like the Academy Awards for science fiction and fantasy literature. Over some period of years, the Hugo Awards got taken hostage by political correctness. And you could only win one of these awards if you were a leftist or at least weren't openly critical of leftist propaganda. You could get one of these awards. So there's a a, a conservative who saw this, got tired of it, and he decided he was going to do something about it. He was going to take the initiative. And what what he did was create a campaign. John, you remember what it was called? How could you how could you forget this? Sad puppies. The sad puppy campaign. So he, he pulls together the slate of right wingers, conservatives. It's the sad puppy slate. And why does he call it the sad puppies? Because boring fiction is the number one cause of puppy-related sadness. (laughs) Did you know that? So he has this slate. He gets them nominated. He gets his fan base to plunk down $40 a person so that they can vote. It's It's a system where outside fans can come in and vote. And they did so... And his slate won. They swept the awards, every category. And he knew that this was going to draw out the PC mafia, the totalitarians, the the politically correct leftists. And sure enough, racist, misogynist. That's what they were smearing the slate as. However, someone forgot to check that the guy leading the effort was Hispanic. Someone forgot, someone from The Guardian, this British newspaper, and someone from Entertainment Weekly forgot to check that there was a woman on the slate. Someone forgot to check that one of the authors, though he was white, was married to a black woman and had a biracial daughter. And so Entertainment Weekly ended up having to apologize for its story. Um, July 5th, I got this email from someone on a story of the Herald Times. It, it's about prism. Prism. It's, it's a, it's, this is not funny. It's a youth group that's dedicated to normalizing homosexual perversity. It, in youths, in your public school, your schools, 
taxpayer-supported schools, property taxpayer-supported schools, income taxpayer-supported schools, state sales tax-supported. This is all your money. These are your schools, whether you send your kids there or not. And they're sending in their propagandists to normalize perversity so that kids will feel more comfortable being perverse. And, and this is going back to totalitarianism, use their, their strength against them. So here's part of the article. So I'm, this is, I'm quoting. For example, a student might get an extra homework assignment and say, that's so gay. They don't mean to make a reference to the homework sexual orientation, Ingram said. You guys should be laughing at this. This is where you should laugh. This is absurd. There's all, all sorts of material here for you. Instead, they're using the term gay to refer to something as negative. While a teacher might tell the student to stop the behavior, Ingram, would li- Ingram is, the, is the head of this wicked organization, would like to give instructors better ways of responding to the situation. And so they, they say, she says, how do we intervene? How do we use these things as teachable moments? Most teachers are well-intentioned, want to help, but they don't know how. It's like, what, what could they possibly do other than to say, stop it? Okay, skipping on down into this, this article. The training will not only offer general information about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, it will also focus on issues that come up in the classroom. Once PRISM has made its pitch to the school corporation, Ingram hopes the district will make the training mandatory. All you all, all you teachers are going to be taking this for all faculty. So this director has given presentations and training at some school district classes and in the community on a a voluntary basis. But Ingram said she keeps seeing the same faces. That means she's not seeing some other faces that need to be there. Here's what she says. If they're allowed to choose, then we're not reaching the people we really need to reach, she said. The ball's in their court in terms of are they going to take advantage of it. Guys, this stuff is ripe for satire and for drawing sympathy out of the sheep out there that know there's a storm that they're kind of in the middle of, but, you know, they're Facebooking, they're looking at porn, they're Monday night football, it's, you know, they know something's going on out there, but they're being amused to death. Help wake them up. Finally, prepare for persecution. If you haven't done so already, you need to buy and read a copy of the book, Persecution in the Early Church. And teach it to your family, teach it to your church, and be strengthened by the faithfulness of our brothers and sisters who went before us and suffered so much, much more than we have. Specifically, prepare for the loss of your 501c3 status as a charitable organization. The U.S. Solicitor General, in the oral argument before the U.S. Supreme Court, was asked if the homosexuals win and get homosexual marriage What's this going to do to churches that oppose it? And he said, well, they may lose their 501c3 status. So just know that is coming. So what does that mean? Well, 
You're going to be taxed on your income if you're a church. You may lose your property tax exemption. You may lose your sales tax exemption. And the donors in your church are going to have to pay taxes on the money that they give you. There's not going to be a deduction anymore. So we need to prepare for this. This is coming. Jesus said, He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 10, 37 through 39. And I want to read a quote in the few remaining minutes that we have. This is from the martyrdom of two women, Perpetua and Felicitas. And with uh, Perpetua, there was, a, there was some persecution, some physical persecution that she had undergone. Someone had an opportunity to talk to her, to write down what had happened, and then she was th- um, thrown out into the ring again and I think was finally killed by gladiators. So she died. But before she died, someone had recorded some of her testimony. And here's what she says. When I was in the hands of the persecutors, and this is, this is public, this is the arena that Christians were put in. When I was in the hands of the persecutors, my father in his tender solicitude tried hard to pervert me from the faith. My father, I said, you see this picture? Can we call it by any other name than what it is? No, he said. Nor can I call myself by any other name than that of Christian. So he went away. But on the rumor that we were to be tried, he returned and wasted away with anxiety, said, Daughter, have pity on my gray hairs. Have compassion on your father. Do not give me over to disgrace. Look at your brothers. Look at your mother, your aunt. And behold, the child who cannot live without you. She had given birth just recently, an infant. Who was, she was nursing, and she was going to give up her life through this persecution and what was going to happen to her baby. <clears throat> he said, do not destroy us all. kissing my hands and throwing himself at my feet. And I wept because of my father. For he alone of all my family would not rejoice in my martyrdom. So I comforted him saying, in this trial, what God determines will take place. We are not in our own keeping, but in God's. So he left me weeping bitterly. So this is a woman who didn't love her father or mother or child more than she loved Jesus Christ. And this is going to be our battle. Are you willing to give up your children? For Jesus' sake? To make the good confession?
And know this, this is, this is what we should be encouraged by, that God is sovereign and he has ordained whatever comes to pass. Whatever comes to pass to us in persecution is coming through his hand before it hits us. This should be an encouragement to us because we know that we don't have to fear. Be prepared, yes. Be afraid, no. Fear not. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 